April 9, 2020, and this is Paul Gerstein. At the present moment, there is a pandemic occurring, which is a worldwide infection. And these pandemics occur almost always with novel infective agents. In this case, it's a virus to which no one has immunity and which is easily spread from person to person and which in this case uh, is potentially deadly and has devastating effects on the body. There have been other pandemics, but not in the lifetime of anyone likely to be alive right now because the last pandemic that was uh, considered calamitous and that killed perhaps 50 to 100 million people worldwide occurred in 1918. You'd have to be over 100 years old now to have lived through it and even less likely to remember it. So this is something that no one on earth uh, has experienced at this point. It's really quite overwhelming when you watch the news and see how many deaths have already occurred and to know that we're only maybe two or three months into this pandemic. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know how far it's going to spread. We don't know how many people will die. We don't know how severe an effect this will have on economies around the world. We really don't know these things. And the not knowing casts a shadow over just about everything. It's in the back of one's mind at all times, if not the front of one's mind, no matter what you're doing, thinking that my life won't ever return to status quo ante, to the way things were back in December before I ever heard of this pandemic. It's the nature of these calamities. Uh, another one that we could compare this to is 9-11. But in that case, uh, only 3,000 people died as a result of the buildings in New York City being struck by airplanes flown by terrorists. But right now in the United States, as of April 9th, it's an estimated 15,000 people, perhaps far more, that have died of this pandemic. So this is another calamity now in our lives in our lives. So how do we approach this with the insight derived from introspection, from the Zen practice of mindfulness? How do we approach this? I think one way to um, approach this is to look at a particular koan and it's very simple and it goes like this stop the sound of the distant temple bell I'll say it again stop the sound of the distant temple bell now this koan is asking us to do something and not only to do something, but to demonstrate this doing to the teacher who has assigned the koan to us. 
stop the sound of the distant temple bell. How does one do that? And what is meant by this? And why is this a koan at all? I mean, one way to stop the sound of the distant temple bell is to, I suppose, just put my hands over my ears. That would stop the sound. Now, the koan says distant temple bell. Distant for a reason. Because it spares you from considering going over to the bell and putting your hands on the bell or knocking down the person with the striker. That's a way to stop the sound of the temple bell, but not a distant temple bell. Another way of uh, asking this question would be, from where you are, stop the sailboat on the water. From where you are. How do you stop that sailboat from where you are? Would you just cover your eyes? So, it's not that kind of stopping that we're talking about. It's not stopping the actuality, the sensory experience of a distant temple bell or a sailboat way far away on a beautiful blue lake. That's not how the stopping is done. And were you to demonstrate this kind of stopping, in other words, stop the sensation, that would be rejected. The Zen teacher would not accept that as a valid answer. So what do we mean when we use this word stop? That's the crux of this koan. That's the hook in this koan. So every koan has a hook, or perhaps more than one hook. The hook being a word or a phrase that is viewed in a way that is not correct or is the opposite of the intended use of that word, the intended implication of that word. So in this case, the word stop. How do I stop the sound of the distant temple bell? Let's think about this for a moment. Think about a dark night and the sound, the beautiful sound of a temple bell being struck, maybe half a mile away and hearing it drifting towards you, bong, fading away, something mysterious and beautiful. What do we mean here? Stop that sound. What's happening when this sound occurs? We have to start with our actual experience. Every koan requires this. Uh, going into the actual experience, living it, even if it's a thought experiment, plunging into the events of the koan and looking at the koan from within the experience of the events. So what happens when we hear a sound or see a sight or smell an odor or touch something? What happens? 
Well, first you can say that there is an actual sensory experience. Now, one might even say that any experience you have is fundamentally sensory. What do I mean by this? Any emotion has a sensory component. Any sight is primarily sensory. A sound is sensory. In other words, there is a sensation, there is a feeling that you feel that makes it, with quotes around it, real, actual, present. Even uh, were we to think a thought, that thought also is sensory. And uh, in Buddhism, it is a sixth sense. It's other than sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. The sixth sense is thought. And the sense organ of thought is the brain, just as the sense organ of sound is your ear. So anything you can possibly experience inside or outside, when I say inside, I mean a thought. Outside would be all of the different uh, sensations that come to us moment by moment. Another example of an inside sensation would be an emotion, a feeling. So all of these things are fundamentally, primarily sensory. Now, is that everything? When you hear the sound of a distant temple bell, is that the totality of your experience? What happens when you hear this sound? Well, perhaps you immediately name it. Oh, that's a temple bell and it's far away. And then you recognize it. Oh, I've heard that many times. There's that temple down the road. I wonder what's happening right now. Is it the beginning or the end of a lecture being given? Is it a call to prayer? What's happening there? Perhaps you might say, Oh man, that temple bell, I'm really sick of it. It always wakes me up this time of night. Whatever it might be, there is an instantaneous recognition, which is not strictly speaking, the fundamental sensation of the sound. It's something added on that is automatic and that seems to be intrinsic to the reality of this distant temple bell. You recognize it as a sound. You also say, here I am hearing a sound coming from a distant place and that that's a temple bell. And then you have your reaction to it, liking it, disliking it, ignoring it, whatever it might be. Now, what seems to happen to us human beings is that the sensation of an experience fades out behind our reaction to this sensation. It's not that the sensation goes away, it's that our reaction to it becomes primary in our mind. Let me give you another example, and this example will explain why we're so good at doing this, at uh, going from the sheer sensation to our recognition of it so automatically, and that the recognition becomes in our minds more important than the sensation. 
So let's talk about a different sound. Let's talk about a rumble of tires on pavement uh, coming at one rapidly and getting louder and louder. Now that's the sensation, the vibration, the rumble, the sound. But the recognition is that this is a semi-trailer coming down the street from my right, moving to my left. And that recognition includes, I better not step out in the street right now, because this semi-trailer, if it hits me, will kill me. <laughs> now, that's not unimportant. Matter of fact, it's something that multiple times a day is preserving your health and your life. So you can see how over a long period of time, over generations and millennia, the ability to start with a sensation, then immediately recognize it and react to that recognition in some manner is something that kept us alive, that enabled this individual to pass its genes on to the next generation. And that anyone who either couldn't have that sensation because, let's say, they were deaf or blind or uh, couldn't recognize what that sensation meant and how to react to it, might find themselves in dire straits and not passing their genes on to the next generation. So it's not unimportant and it's not wrong to have a sensation and then immediately recognize it and react to it. But let's notice something too. The sensation itself, let's say the sound of that distant temple bell, and our recognition of it, these two aspects of this experience do not impinge upon one another. Your recognizing the distant temple bell doesn't stop the sound of the bell, doesn't impair the sound of the bell, doesn't impinge upon the sound of the bell. Similarly, the sheer sensation of sound caused by a distant temple bell does not impede your ability to recognize it and react to it. The two can happen, happen simultaneously. I'll give you another example. You're sitting in front of a TV set. Now, there is a visual experience of a rectangular thing across the room that is lit up and shows a movement of color and shapes. Yes, that's the sensory experience. And there's also the recognition that I'm watching television. Now you even can add into that that there are events happening on this television and I'm following the course of these events and I'm getting drawn into the drama of it. But the fact that that's happening doesn't stop the sheer sensation, the visual sensation of the television. Neither does the visual sensation impair or impede in any way your following the story and getting drawn into the drama that you're watching. The two happen simultaneously. But are they the same thing? You really can't say that. You can't say that the visual experience and your interpretation of it are identical. 
but they are very closely related. Now you can say one thing, that the visual sensation is a necessary aspect of what follows, which is your interpretation of it, you're naming it, you're comparing it, you're watching it and getting drawn into it and understanding the course of action that the visual experience is implying. But it doesn't work the other way around. So the feelings and emotions of the events occurring and you're understanding that you're watching television and that this is a particular show that you like, do not create the sensation of sight, except perhaps only in an imagination. But let's leave that aside for now. So one might say that the sensation is primary and the reaction, the interpretation, is secondary. So now we see two sides of this seemingly unitary experience, the sound of a distant temple bell and the recognition of that sound. They happen simultaneously. They seem intimately connected. But what the human mind has learned to do from millennia of evolution and learning that not only does one see a sight or hear a sound, but one better react immediately because there may be a negative consequence coming from that sensation. Or conversely, there may be something very positive that I have to grasp onto or get or chase after. So although the sensation is primary, the meaning of the sensation, our reaction to it, becomes the more important thing in our mind. So that we begin to live in the world of reaction to, interpretation of, meaning of, as the important side of our life and the sensations taken for granted, perhaps not watched closely perhaps therefore not experienced intimately. They're there, they're not stopped by our interpretation, but our interpretation draws our attention to it and away from the sensation. So returning to this koan again, stop the sound of the distant temple bell. We can begin to see it in a little different way. Stop the sound of the distant temple bell. Now imagine putting quotes around sound of the distant temple bell, end quote. So now the statement is stop the quote sound of the distant temple bell, end quote. You can see this now suggesting that maybe the real sound, the actual sound, is not the same as, quote, the sound of the distant temple bell. In other words, my recognition of it, my putting it into a category, my reaction to it, my wanting it or not wanting it, and all the rest. So is this the kind of stopping that I'm being asked to do? Stop the, quote, sound of the distant temple bell? So this word hook, stop, 
Initially, I might have thought that uh, stopping the sound of the distant temple bell was simply stopping the actual sound, putting my fingers in my ears or covering my ears. No, that's not correct. Maybe it's stopping the reaction to that sound, my interpretation of that sound. Stop the, quote, sound of the distant temple bell. Is that what they're asking me to do? In other words, just return to my sheer experience of the sound. We're kind of getting warm here. We're moving in the right direction. But is that the whole story here? So, I'd like to say right now that this is not the whole story, that there's something deeper still. And the problem here is how do we access that? How do you get to this deeper thing? So you've got the quote sound of the distant temple bell, and you've got bong. But there's something even deeper than that that will help us really get what the stopping is. How do we get to that? What is it? So let me uh, bring up a little thought experiment for you. Actually, let's make it real. Let's have you touch your hand to something. Let's say you're sitting in a chair. You touch the arm of the chair. I want you to feel the sensation of that. Feel it? Just stay with that sensation for a moment. Now I want you to name it. Oh, I'm touching the arm of the chair. You can add to it, uh, it's soft or it's hard or it's smooth or it's rough. It's cold or it's warm or neutral. I like it, I don't like it. Add that in. But notice that even though you add that in, the actual sensory experience is still there. Now I can pay attention to my interpretation of this experience and really focus on that and really get caught up in it and begin to not notice the sensation even though it's still there. Now, is that actually happening? Uh, let me give you an example of how that's happening. Not only are you touching the arm of the chair with your hand, but your rear end is touching the seat of the chair. And until I pointed that out, you perhaps weren't aware of that clearly. You weren't noticing that. Yes, it was there. Now that you notice it, it hasn't changed, but you've shifted your awareness. So there's a process here of shifting awareness to and from the actual experience into our interpretation or what I might subsume under the word meaning. So we have what things are and what they mean. And because what they mean is so important to my survival, oftentimes, I tend to live there. That's where I primarily live my human life and what things mean. All my strategies, calculations, comparisons, likes and dislikes, everything, the whole realm of complicated human living is the realm of meaning. So going back to your hand on the arm of this chair, at first you might say, oh, I'm touching the arm of my chair. And then you can make the move very smoothly. 
not even having to let go of that idea that you're touching the arm of the chair to the actual sensation. You can hold both in your awareness. So you can then be very aware mindfully of the sensation. Now you're going from what it means to what it is, or perhaps as it is. So what it means, I'm touching the arm of the chair, and it's soft or hard or warm or cold, to as it is, the sheer sensation. Now I want you to consider one step further. I want you to make the move from the sheer sensation to the fact of the sensation. In other words, from what it means to as it is, the sensation, to that it is, its sheer fact, that it is. Now, that it is and as it is do not impede one another. You can have the sensation and notice that it is. In other words, that it appears to you. That it appears. Now, its appearance has no particularities. Has no form, color, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought. Its appearance is something fundamental. You might say that its appearance is the same as the appearance of anything. The sheer fact of the world precedes any particularities of the fact of the world. Get that? The sheer fact of anything in particular precedes and is, one might say, the source of the sensation of that particularity. Just as the sensation of that particularity precedes and is the source of any meaning you might give it. So now we've got three layers. We've got what it means, as it is, and that it is. Okay. So keep this in mind, and I want you as, an, as a practice right now, till our next discussion, to actually do this. For example, uh, you're driving down the street and your hands are on a steering wheel. I want you to notice your thinking going on and on. Uh, I'm driving a car. I'm turning right. I'm turning left. There's sounds and sights around you. And then I want you to just bring yourself back to the sensation of your hand on the steering wheel. Now I want you to ask this question. It's kind of the opposite of the stop question, stop the sound of the distant temple bell. I want you to go in the opposite direction. I want you to ask yourself, while you experience the sensation of your hand on the steering wheel, what does this mean? Okay, what does this sensation mean? Now, I don't want you to answer it with the kind of meaning that we're quite addicted to or automatically are able to do. It means my hand's on a steering wheel. It means I'm driving a car. I want you to go underneath that. What does this sensation mean? 
just the sensation. Don't go to any conclusion. Stay with the sensation and ask yourself, what does this sensation mean? Now, when we use this word mean or imply or suggest or point at, what does this sensation point at? What I'm really asking here is, what does this sensation indicate? What overarching truth is it pointing at? Not what is an arbitrary meaning I might give it, or a meaning within some context, or some thought project. But what does this actual sensation mean? I know this seems absurd, but it's through these questions that bring about a sensation of absurdity that Zen aims us to do, and names doubting, and names this process of the absurdity of a question, entering a state of doubt. It's in that state of doubt that the superficial meanings begin to drop away. So I want you to feel your hands on the steering wheel, feel your hands on the arm of the chair, hear a sound, and just practice lightly, but persistently asking yourself, what does this mean? Now, just before we end today, I want to circle back to where we started, which was the COVID-19 pandemic. How can we apply what we began to explore today to something that vast, something that overwhelming, that catastrophic? So remember now, the pandemic has a meaning. It means a lot of people are going to get sick. A lot of people are going to die. It means that our economy is going to suffer. It means perhaps that life will never be the same after we recover from this pandemic as before it ever happened. And we blissfully thought that it wouldn't happen anytime soon, even though we knew that there was a potential for a pandemic. So we have that level of what we call meaning, what it means to be in a pandemic. And then there's the actuality. In other words, your moment-to-moment -moment experience of your life, which may include wearing a mask, which may include social distancing, which may include, if you're single, being alone in your house for a lot of the day. So there's a sensory experiential level to a pandemic that, in a sense, precedes its meaning, is more fundamental to your actual experience than the meaning of a pandemic. And then there is the sheer fact, the reality that the pandemic appears just like anything else like your hands on a steering wheel, like a toothache, like a wonderful, delicious bite of dessert. So we'll pick it up from here next time.